This morning, though, let's get into the message. Let's dive right into this. We are in a new series, so if you're a visitor and I see some new faces today, I want to thank you for visiting City Lights. We don't take it lightly, but we are a church in the middle. We just started a new series, and I'll recap briefly for you. We believe that there's a prophetic word over this church for this year that God wants to give us new wineskins to hold the wine that he is about to pour out into us this year. God has hopes, ambitions, plans, and desires for us to walk into this year, and we can either facilitate that by making the space for him to give us the new thing, or we can reject it and try to hang on to the old tradition that we used to have. So that's the first week that we looked at in the new year. Second thing we talked about last week is seeing the kingdom. I can't pray for the kingdom to come unless I can see through the spirit the kingdom of God in this city, even when it looks dark and broken. Make sense? I need to pray and declare God's kingdom because Jesus tells us to. He told his disciples, pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then all the other things that he lists are now words as well. So it's not like, hey, we'll pray the kingdom of God come in 175 years when we're all raptured or whatever our eschatology is. It's pray the kingdom of God now. And we have to see it and declare it. And that's who we are. So just so you know, we're all on the same page now. We're three weeks into this new year. And that's where we're at. Um, let me ask you a question. Have you ever, maybe, maybe let's just go back to our childhood and there was something that you were really, really looking forward to. Maybe your parents told you you were going to go on this vacation or they were going to buy you a new bike or they were going to let you have that toy that you wanted, or you thought for Christmas you were going to get whatever your easy bake oven. I don't know, whatever it was. And you had this lot of hope building. You guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever experienced a lot of hope, anticipation for something that wasn't quite in your hands? Nobody in this room. You guys are a sad group of hopeless people. Hopeful, like you had this hope. I mean, it might have been last week. It might have been 17 years ago. I don't know. But there was this hope for something. Like somebody said, hey, we're going to do this. And then there's this other part of you that's like, I don't know if I really believe you. We might not do this. You know, something might happen. Finances might be tough. Or, you know, your plans might change. Your dad might get called out to work, so we're not going to go play football. You, you know what I'm talking about? You kind of have this reservation in the back of your mind. My, uh, my, my English teacher in high school used to say this all the time. Promises like pie crust are easily broken, right? And so we kind of build this mentality. You, you guys are trying to put, you ever, anybody ever hear that before? Like, okay, well, he said it all the time. <laughs> Um, he also used to say, put a flower pot on your head, you have a blooming idiot. He used to say a lot of helpful, encouraging things. So anyway, but pie crust, it's easily crumbles, right? And he said, promises like that are easily broken. And so there's this part of us as humans that we naturally are a little bit skeptical. Like we have this anticipation, this hope, but yet we kind of build this reservation because we don't want to get our hopes too high, right? You ever hear that? You ever think that? We don't want to set ourselves up. We don't, we don't want to put ourselves in this place of anticipation and then be let down because then everything would be sad. And I want to point out this morning that that is the opposite mentality that we should have when approaching God and when we have declaring the kingdom. It's the opposite of what he has called you and I to be and how we view life and what he is doing on the earth. Make sense? Go ahead and look in Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 13, People are like, numbers? What is that? We are typically going through a book of the New Testament, but today God has called us to the book of Numbers. It's in the front of your book. Um, It'll also be on the screen, Numbers chapter 13. 
If you do not have a Bible, the one in the pew in front of yours, you can keep that. You can take it home with you. It's yours. Um, If yours is wrinkly, I'll give you a new one. It's fine, but I want you to have a Bible. Numbers chapter 13, we're going to look at this. And so this is God telling his people, Israel, I'm giving you a promised land, right? I'm giving you a land, Canaan. I want it to be yours. And so verse chap, chapter 13, we're going to read verses 1 through, through 2 real quick. Are you guys excited today? I'm, I'm, I've told Robert, my heart is really ready to explode. My notes are few because I think more is in my heart than I can write down. So I'm just going to give whatever the Spirit's saying, and we're going to go through a lot of verses. You guys ready? Ready for a ride. Okay, here we go. Chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Pretty clear, right? Send the men, look at the land, the spy, I'm giving it to them. Right? Let's go to verse 21. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rohab near Lebohamath. That's a fun one. They went up from there to Negeb and came to Hebron, Aman, Sheshah, Talmiah, and the descendants of Anak there were, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in, in, in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Ishkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel had cut down from there. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. So let me pause in case you didn't pick that up. There's one cluster of grapes that was massive in size. They they needed to put it on a pole and a bunch of men carrying this one cluster of grapes. It's big grapes. And then they also took pomegranates and figs. Anyway. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation, and they showed them the fruit of the land, and they told him, we came to the land to which you have sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell there in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The, Amal- the Amalekites dwell in the land of, of Negeb. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we, we are well able to overcome it. Let me point out something here. Caleb is one of the 12 spies sent. God said, send one representative from each tribe of Israel. Caleb and Joshua and then all 10 other spies go into the land. They come back and say, look how awesome the fruit is. But there are giants there. And there's this tribe that's our enemy, that tribe that's our enemy, and that tribe that's our enemy. And there begins to be a discussion and a quarrel and a commotion in the people. And I love that it says, Caleb quieted them. And he declared this. He said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb was a man who saw that the land was theirs despite the giants and the enemies in the land. Make sense? Let's keep reading. Then the men... Who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report 
of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through, with, through which we have gone, out, gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. So you have these representatives of God's people, and you have two of them, which we'll see a little bit later, but we see Caleb say, this land's ours, and the rest say, no, there's giants. There's these descendants of the Nephilim. There's these massive men there. We can't go because we seemed like grasshoppers to them. I want to point out that when you and I live outside of our identity in Christ, we will always feel like grasshoppers to the promised land, to the enemies in the land that we are called to go into. We will always feel like lesser than in our society, in our culture, in our family, in our relationships when we don't view ourselves through the promise and through our identity hidden in Christ. Make sense? 14 verse 3, let's go there. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Stop there quickly. They asked, why is God sending us here to die? Our kids will become prey to them. Our children will be destroyed because of them. They hear the promise of the Father to them saying, the land is yours. They see the enemy in the land. And instead of saying, God, thank you for the victory, they say, why are you going to destroy us? I want to point out that sometimes when we begin to hear the promised land, when we begin to see God's kingdom, when we see the vision of the vastness of it, it's a little too much. And instead of having a good, healthy view of our Father who loves us and has given Himself for us and given us the inheritance of the kingdom, we instead start to say, God, why are you asking me to do this? This is too much for me. This comes from a bad view of the Father. Here you have men who don't understand His promises that they're there for them to walk in, and they give room instead for weeping, for fear, for wild thoughts and grumbling. The beginning of the, the chapter there in verse, four, uh, four, verse 1 of 14 says, the people wept that night. They, instead of hearing the promises and internalizing them as reality, gave room to all these fears and insecurities, and it destroyed their mentality. It destroyed their peace. It destroyed their hope. When we don't understand his heart for us, when we don't know that he truly, deeply loves us and has called us to good things, then our mentality, our worldview will be weak and full, our nights will be full of tears. Verse 14, when you don't grab onto the promises that he has. If you look at ver, um, verse 4, I mean. They said, choose another leader. Let's go back to Egypt. When we don't grab the promises that God wants for us because of fear, we turn from pursuit of freedom to a default back to slavery. What was Egypt? They were slaves. And they see the promised land full of enemies, and instantly they're ready to go back to slavery. Instantly they're ready to get another leader, the guy who... Listen to God, split the Red Sea. They walked through miracle after miracle. The, the same God who brought the ten plagues to Egypt, and each one of those plagues is 
It goes right along with one of the Egyptian gods. Where God's like, no, I'm better than that God. I'm better than this God. I'm better than that God. That same group of people, when they see giants in the lands and beautiful fruit of the lands that God's promised them, instead of walking in it, they say, let's find another leader to take us back. We'll go the whole way back. Fear. Do you see what fear does here? It leads us away from freedom and back into slavery. Let's look at verse 20. Actually, no. Go down to verse 7. The land which we pass through to spy it out is exceedingly good land. This is, this is Caleb saying this. And Joshua, in verse 6, And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb, they were among the spies, and they tore their clothes and said to the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through it to spy it out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel." What happens here is you have Joshua and Caleb stand up again and say, no, 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 no. If God wants to give us this land, which he said he did, he'll give it to us and they will be like bread to us. They will nourish us. We won't be prey to them. They will be bread to us. Make sense? It's a different viewpoint on the same promise. It's a different viewpoint on what God had spoken to them. And I love that the people, I don't love it, it makes me sad, but the people responded to these words with like, oh, I don't like what you're saying. Let's stone them. And then God's glory shows up and protects them. Amen. Fear leads to things like stoning and weeping and aggression and against people who speak life. They want to bring death. Fear, an, an, a bad understanding of the kingdom of God, a bad understanding of God's desires for us leads to that kind of thinking. Go to verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. I want to stop right there for a second. That's a promise right there. He's like, as surely as I live and my glory will cover the earth. It's a promise. That's an exciting word for me anyway. It's a promise. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and they have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And we'll stop there. I love that God points out to Caleb he had a different spirit than the rest. There was a different spirit inside of him than the other guys who were able to walk into that land, him and Joshua. They saw something differently. They had the spirit of God in them. They had the spirit that trusted the Father. And God said, I'm not, I'm not going to destroy them. I'm not going to destroy my people. But because they went in and didn't listen to me, and didn't remember all the things that I had done to them, I promised them promised land, 
and they chose slavery. And instead of doing that, in his mercy, I want to point out, it's in his mercy that he gave them the wilderness. It wasn't promise. It wasn't slavery. They were choosing slavery, and he gave them wilderness. I feel like I feel like so often we can feel like we're in this wilderness, and I, I would say the wilderness of our lives that we feel like we're a part of, it's in his mercy he hasn't given us slavery that we've been calling out for, but it's still his promise that we can walk toward the promised land. We can walk in the fullness of the kingdom right now. Make sense? Keep, we're going to keep reading here. Verse 30. And no one shall come into the land that I swore that I would make you dwell except for Caleb, the son of Jephthah, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead body shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be the shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years and shall suffer with your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness, according to the numbers of days that you spied out the land. God says for 40 years you're going to wander in the wilderness, and those who, who came in, those spies who came in and said, we, it's not ours, we're fearful, they're done. And you're going to wander in this wilderness, but your children will see that promised land. But because of your unfaithfulness, because you don't know who I am, they got to go through this wilderness phase. Some of us are thinking, that's really mean. But these principles are true in the kingdom even now. It's why last week when I talked about what we are going after, bringing God's kingdom here on the earth right now in this moment, it's because I want my children and your children to walk in the promises of the kingdom for us on this earth now and not have to wait till I'm long dead and gone to then begin to journey into the promise, to then be able to understand God's promises for us on this earth, to then be able to understand that he has got healing and gifts and righteousness and joy and peace. All the fruits of the spirits are available to them now when we begin to bring and pray his kingdom right now. I don't want to walk in this kind of like weird Christianity where I'm like this woe is me mentality where God's kind of angry, but he gave us Jesus so that one day we can get to heaven. So in the meantime, I can kind of be miserable, but happy about my misery. I don't want that for my kids. Does that make sense? I don't want them to walk in that wilderness for 40 years until Jesse's dead. And then like reading the scriptures, wait a minute, you're saying the promised lands over here. Why did I spend my whole childhood wondering if God was ever going to love us? Why did I spend all these years wondering about the goodness of God and seeing the promises in Scripture but not in my life today? God's Word for us has always been life-giving. It's never stopped being life-giving. But what we tend to do is we focus on all the giants in the land that we produce a wilderness experience for us and for our next generation. What I... I'm desiring that God builds in our church here at City Lights is not a wilderness experience for our next generation. I don't want that. I don't want that for any of us. Some of us grew up in homes and probably some of us create homes where the kingdom of God is not manifest and there's not joy, there's not peace, there's not love, there's not assurance, there's a lot of identity issues, there's a lot of insecurities, there's a lot of turmoil, and God's just some God who spun the earth and walked away. That's not what we see, and I don't want that to be my kids' experience. Make sense? I'm, pre- I'm preaching from my heart this morning. 
um, Robert and, and Will, we just went through, we go through books. They live in the, the mentorship house next door. And this is a great book, Momentum by Eric and Bill Johnson. But I want to read this quote um, real quick. It's talking about the same idea of leaving this legacy. When people begin to walk in a fresh understanding of an abundant God, they begin to naturally live for the generations they will never see. When people are consumed with lack, they often lose the very ability to do this. We often reduce the Christian life to just our own lives. When we begin to reach that Christian life, or to teach that Christian life is just about us, we need to revisit our understanding of the kingdom. This whole thing, God's love for you, can I say this? Is not about you. God's grace for you is not about you. Sure, you're a part of it, but it's about the next generation and the next generation. It's inheritance. The kingdom of God is built on fathers and sons and giving inheritance to the next generation. We cannot become a Christian culture that thinks about my personal experience only. But what is my personal experience? What is my personal being the ambassador of the kingdom of God, being a proclamator of his righteousness and his name? What does that build for my ne- the next generation on the earth? We live in the repercussions of generations who have not thought about the manifest presence of the kingdom of God. We live in that society. That sounds like a hard word, scary word. Everybody's like, hmm, sad thoughts today. Let's move into some good stuff. How about that? I, I feel like somebody's bummed right now. Joshua chapter 2, let's look there. So we got 40 years later, or give or take. Joshua chapter 2. Nope, not 2. 6. Actually, I do want to read 2 verse 1. 2 verse 1, don't have to go there, just go ahead and go to 6. But 2 verse 1, and Joshua, the son of Nun, he's still alive. He's ready to walk into the promise. He declared truth. He declared, he hung on to what God was saying. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. What I want to point out there is not that weird word. But I want to point out, Joshua, years later, is like, I'm not sending 12, we're sending two. Last time we sent 12, what happened? Ten weren't seeing the will of God. Ten weren't seeing his heart. I'm not doing that again. This is a man who recognized that the formula of the past that didn't bring fruit won't be a good solution for today. Some of us have been like, we just couldn't wait for 2016 to get over. You're like one of those guys posting on Facebook. Whew. 2016 had me like it, and then you post a little meme where you're like on the ground crawling or whatever it is. Like, what I'm trying to communicate is spiritually and practically in a lot of other areas, the same formula that brought death, destruction, heartache, misery, uh, lack of joy, lack of peace for last year isn't going to bring you the kingdom this year. So we got to change this thing up. We got to say, just like we said on, on New Year's Day, God give us new wineskins for this new year. Help me to think differently. Seeing the kingdom, it's a transformed mind. It's repentance to see the kingdom. Says God, I don't want to think like I used to think about you. I want to think the way you think for me. I got to have a new formula. 
I got to have a new way of seeking your kingdom on the earth. I want to challenge you this year to walk in the fullness of the kingdom, to walk into the promised land here in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and in your personal life, you will need to make some shifts personally, practically, theologically, the whole thing. Something's got to shift. And I love that Joshua was able to do that. Chapter 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. We're gonna, let me just sum up the rest. God says, this is, a long, this is a long process here. He says, here's what we're going to do. I'm giving you the city. Remember I told you I'd give you the land before? I'm giving you the land. Jericho is part of Canaan. It's, part of, it's the big city. He says, I'm giving you the land. It's a big city. You sent spies in there. The walls are huge. It's a big deal. I'm giving it to you. Plan for success here. Let's go ahead. Get my presence. Get the ark. Get, get your trumpeters. Get the worshipers out front. We're going to march around this thing once. Every day for six days. On the seventh day, let's do it seven times. The end of the seventh time, let it loose. Scream, worship, pray, blow them trumpets. Here we go, worship time, right? And then he says, I will, the walls will fall flat. That's what it says. Let's go to verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early, and at the dawn of the day, they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has, has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute, there we go, she, and all who live with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we have sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction." Lest that you should, lest when you when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make them camp of Israel, a thing for destruction and bring up trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord; they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So when the people shouted and the trumpets were blown, as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. I want to point out here in this passage that God's plan worked. It makes no logical sense at all. They shout and scream, and walls fall down. This is a fortified city, a strong city, that they had said generations ago, nobody can go into this place. We can't take it. There's giants in this land. And God said, no, 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 no. You're going to go. You're going to declare me. You're going to make my presence known. And then I'm going to give you the city. It's how I work. Declare me. Proclaim me. Because I've given it to you. And I give it to you. It's the way he works. It's faithful, confident worship and obedience that gave him the land. And I love that that verse in the beginning said, with all of its kings and its mighty men of valor. There were kings in that land. There were mighty, strong warriors in Jericho. And God said, it's your worship. It's your obedience to what I'm saying, and I'm giving you the land. That should be exciting for some of us. Because I know, for me, I can walk in confident worship. You give me a sword, 
I'm going to struggle. <laughs> you tell me to come up with a creative plan how to bring the kingdom of God in the, in, in the Scranton, we can sit in my office all day long and I'm not going to get anything done. But it's confident worship and hanging on to the promises of God that brings his kingdom. I love Keely's testimony. We didn't talk about it. She didn't even tell it until I heard it. She just asked, can I share it? I said, yes. Because it's testimony. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, Scripture says. It's testimony. She stood up here and said something was going on with my daughter. And I've known this process has been happening. Where she didn't want to even pray. She didn't want to want to hear God. And something, because of the power of God, lined up in her. And Keely kept interceding for her daughter. God did something, and now she's choosing a Christian Bible college. She's choosing to give her wealth, her earnings, to a missionary. She's choosing to say, I'm declaring God in my life. Keely had to make that connection and claim it as hers. Sometimes we have to do that as well. Not sometimes, we have to do that as well. We have to hang on to the promises of God and declare his kingdom in our world, even though it doesn't make any sense. There was no way that when she began to intercede, she's like, oh, I'm going to pray. Not only do you grab her heart, God, and let her cry out for your injustice and for your namesake, but also could she go to a Christian college and also could she give all of her money to Will? She was not even thinking those things. When we hang on to his promises, he gives us more than we can ask or hope, doesn't he? But so often we go right back to the desert in slavery because it's too big for us to even think how we're going to get through there. We're scared. God, you're going to kill our kids. You're going to make us all pray. You're going to destroy us because we don't recognize his heart for us. I want to point out two verses here. Luke chapter 12, verse 29 through 34. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek these things. Your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. We talked about that verse recently, didn't we? Just last week. It says to seek the kingdom of God. We don't worry about all the things that we actually think we need, like food and drink and all that stuff, and are tangible, our bodies need that. Our, we need that in life. He said, don't even worry about that. What you need more is the kingdom of God now. That's what you seek more now. We, we talked about that last week, but let me read the next verse, 32. Fear not, little flock. I love that. Jesus is like so tender. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourself money bags that don't get old with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. He says it is the Father's delight. It is his good pleasure. It's the thing he wants to give you the inheritance of the kingdom. That's now. Let's not make the inheritance of the kingdom simply some mystical thing when we are buried and in the ground and then we go to heaven. Let's not make the kingdom that. That's not what the scripture tells us. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is on the earth through us. And it's his delight to give it to you. He delights in it to give it. I don't earn it. I receive it. I take it. I grab it. It's mine. This is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. I've, if you've known me for more than a year, you've probably heard me preach it. I won't preach it right now just because of time, but I'll give you a little snap, a little, a little bit of it. Matthew 16, verse 18. And I tell you, Peter, 
On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The foundation that he is giving is not Peter in the name change. I think that's a part of it. God is, God is good with plays on words. What the foundation that he will build his church on is the proclamation of Christ as Lord. That's the foundation that he builds his church on. And he has given us, not just Peter, keys to the kingdom of God. We have received the authority to loose on the earth what's loosed in heaven, to bind on the earth what's bound in heaven. Does that make sense? It gets a little confusing with loosing and binding. We're like, what are we talking about here? We get to declare and loose what is in heaven here on the earth, and we bind what is on the earth, what isn't in heaven. So if I see sickness and poverty and disease, if I see anger and violence, I get to bind that. I get to pray against that because it's not the kingdom of heaven. When I see sickness, I bring health because we get to declare what's in heaven on the earth. There is no sickness. There is no tears. There is no anger. There is no pride. There is no self-righteousness. There is only faith, joy, peace, the Holy Spirit. That's what I get to loose on the earth because I have the authority. You and I have the authority of the kingdom of God here and now. Does that make sense? We, we, we tracking? Some of you guys do not agree with me. I can just feel you're skeptical about this. You're like, promises like pride crush, Jesse. Let me say something. Your experience does not define God. Your bad theology in the past does not define God's promises for today. I'm just telling you what I, what I see in the Scripture. My theology cannot be shaped by my experience or my confusion my theology has to be shaped by what he says. Right? Ten spies went in and shaped their viewpoint, not on even what he did, but on with their fears and insecurities. I cannot allow that to be a part of who I am today. It's a different spirit. Worship team, if you want to come forward. I want to read one last quote here this morning. I, I feel like I got so much more I could give, but... I can see a glaze on a few of you. Some of you guys are ready, like for round two right now. I'm, I want to, if I'm doing anything right now in these last three weeks, we are trying to build an expectation for God's presence here. Make sense? Because it's what he asks us to be, to bring his kingdom, to pray his kingdom, to declare his kingdom. I want to read this one other passage here from, from the same book. He talks about the story where you see Jesus walking with his disciples and he sees the fig tree and it doesn't have fruit, right? You guys remember this story? And he curses the fig tree and it withers up. And the disciples are shocked by this. Another thing to point out though is that tree didn't have fruit because it wasn't the season for fruit. That's why it didn't have fruit. So like, man, that was really angry of Jesus. He sees a tree that doesn't produce fruit and he's like, hey, I created you to not have fruit this way, so curse you. <laughs> it doesn't make sense, right? That's not what's happening here, though. Jesus sees a fruit, and he desires fruit in that thing, and he de- expects it to have fruit, and it doesn't. So he curses this thing. Johnson says this, he requires from us fruit that is impossible to bear. I said before, it is not normal for a Christian to not have an appetite for the impossible. It's completely abnormal. It's a deformity that comes through disappointment and or bad teaching. We 
If you call yourself a Christian and you're in Christ, if you've received His sacrifice on the cross, His resurrection as fact, His impartation of the Holy Spirit as who you are, these are all things, let me give you a secret, that are impossible. But it's real. And it happened. Our very foundation, everything that we say we believe, is built on the impossible. So Jesus goes and He tells us to declare the impossible to see it come on the earth. We need to, as Christians, expect the impossible because anything less is just religious tradition. I'm not frustrated as much as I'm grieved because I feel like the majority of Christian society has created this Christianity that is so weak and lifeless that it only has the power to save my soul, but it doesn't actually have the power to impact my life now. The kingdom of God is word and power. It's not one or the other. It's this book as the most important thing on earth, but it's also his spirit alive in me, declaring and speaking things that I haven't even seen, that I've never experienced. I get to partner with the creative side of God as his creation on the earth and be fruitful and multiplied, subdue the earth. It's part of the very beginning of our creative mandate. Does it make sense? We are called to subdue the earth. And so if my, my gospel has no power other than for the first early church or for me to be saved cognitively and spiritually go to heaven when I die, we're missing half of these pages. Does that make sense? I, I want to just challenge us this morning. I know, I know I've gone longer than you're used to, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what time. Okay, it's, we're good. Let's stand. This morning as we were worshiping, I don't know what the guys are going to sing. They could sing any any of those songs. We're good. But there was a line this morning that really gripped me. The line that said, there's nothing I have need of. There's nothing you haven't done. This morning when we began to sing that, I just began to declare up here my healings that I need. I declared up here the deliverances that I need. I declared up here the church that he is building that I want to see because there's nothing I have need of. There's nothing he hasn't done. You and I get to grab a hold of the goodness of the Father and proclaim the kingdom on the earth. You and I will get to see Jericho's fall. Nobody's excited about that. Just That was a great time to say, yeah, that's, I'll take that. Let me, let me be real, real with you this morning if I can. We, most of us in this room have Jerichos that need to fall. Most of us in this room have, have tangible expressions of the kingdom of God we need to see. Make sense? My, my youngest daughter has to go to get a GI x-ray because she can't hold food all of a sudden. She can only drink by the bottle. There's a healing that I'm taking hold of and declaring for, for grace. My oldest daughter's deaf in her one ear. There's a healing that I'm grabbing onto and declaring your kingdom, your promises, your will. You didn't speak death and destruction and brokenness to me. You don't speak that to me. So, is, that, is anybody real with us this morning? Grab onto that. There's nothing you have need of because there's nothing he hasn't done. Like Martin said, the yes has been spoken. 2,000 years ago, the yes has been spoken. Grab it this morning. The kingdom is real. It's his good pleasure to give it to you. Let's worship.